like <laughs> we know that fascism and Nazis are wrong and cause horrible, horrible things to happen to innocent people. I don't think we could be any more sure of that. And so I think that there's a serious willful ignorance that happens when it is made tolerable. You know, it's like the the adage about the the tolerant society. The only way to have a tolerant society is to be intolerant of intolerance. You're listening to Talent Wears a Skirt. Hey folks, Sydney and Cassie here, and for better or for worse, we decided to start a podcast. Join us and our future guests once a month where we hash out the pros and cons of being a woman in academia. Women from the undergraduate to faculty streams will hash out the details with us of their experiences being a woman within an academic world. Each of our seasons consists of six episodes and deals with one specific discipline, and we can't wait to see how things compare. This podcast is for all those interested in learning about an academic encounter where no topic is off limits. And don't forget to rate and subscribe after the beep. Okay, so we want to welcome on Stephanie Petrick to tell him where's her skirt today and just a little bit about her. So that way you guys get some context of why we're so interested in talking to her. Is She's an undergraduate student as well at the University of Calgary with us. Um, and she's part of the classics and religious department, focusing primarily on the classic side of things, who focuses on sex and gender history. She also <laughs> does far too much for her own good and is the VP of events for the department's undergraduate society called Agora. And currently her topic of study explores ancient Hellenistic expectations for elite or royal women to enact dynastic violence on their rivals. So welcome and thank you so much for joining us, Stephanie. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Of course, and of course with me as well as fellow co-host Sydney Burton. Hey guys. So I guess a question for me that first comes into mind starting with academia, just recently getting out of my undergraduate education as well, is an experience that I had consistently throughout surrounding group work. And have you noticed, as I have, that more work gets dumped onto females within groups? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, to be honest, I've been uh, blessed. <laughs> and I really haven't done a lot of group work. Yeah. Um, I think that I am also the kind of person who takes it on most of the time. Right. Um, yeah, but I, I do know that I have, um, for instance, one of my really good friends is in communications at MRU. And I know that she has recognized that quite a bit because communications is entirely group work. Mm-hmm. And it's just more natural, she says, or more like common for um, the women in a group to take charge. Uh, so that is an interesting take on it, though. I wonder if it is um, in part that <laughs> maybe they feel like they have to take charge to get anything done. Yeah, I was going to I was going to mention that. I mean, I think um, for myself, this idea that like I take on more than I should mm-hmm. definitely comes from like an idea that 
um, I need to do everything alone in order for it to be done right. <laughs> and I'm only just kind of realizing now that like a lot of that comes from kind of this idea that uh, we should be able to multitask more as women. Mm-hmm. Um, and that a lot of times people specifically um, like some cishet men will dump extra work onto me, um, specifically mm-hmm. like household work um, on top of everything else. So all, all of a sudden, instead of becoming an academic in a space, you kind of become like an academic and like a mom and a counselor and someone who is supposed to be like gluing the team together. <laughs> Have you oh. found um, anything like that? <laughs> Um, yeah, I absolutely have. Um, I think that in terms of maybe micromanaging is a strong word, but definitely in terms of managing what people in the group are doing to make sure things get done properly (laughs) that, um, I mean, I don't know if I can uh, attribute that societally necessarily, but I do know that the women in my family all do that all the time because it's the only way that things get done properly. (laughs) Sorry, Dad, if you're listening, not to cast too much shade. But. No, I completely agree with you there. And I think an interesting thought for me, too, and especially with you, congratulations on being newly married. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. It's such an exciting time. And I think... Exciting! I know. And it's such a neat transition, too. And I think speaking from a position of also being young and being um, semi-newly married... It's such an interesting dynamic of the fact that I'm expected to uphold this school life and participate. And I have these specific expectations for myself and what I want to achieve. But then I'm still expected to perform at that same level at home. And talking with other uh, girlfriends of mine in academia, it is insane to me how much work that we do both in the house setting as well as in the academic setting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's it kind of comes back to the same, I guess, vibe as the group work uh, topic in terms of uh, in my marriage, my husband really, he's so sweet. He really wants to help with things. Mm-hmm. But I, I just feel like he doesn't do them to my standards yeah. <laughs> sometimes. Yes. And, yeah, and so like I, I always say that... Um, I got the closest thing to marrying a woman when I married Joachim <laughs> because he's he's always had almost exclusively female friends and friends in the queer community. So he, I feel very little pressure there. Thank God I'd kill him if I did, <laughs> if I did <laughs> on top of everything else. But I, I think I put pressure on myself. And yeah. I think that definitely is a factor of, you know, I grew up, most of the women in my family were homemakers. And so whether I kind of liked it or not, I learned how to do it, you know, properly, big air quotes, if you will. Yeah, that's that's totally fair. So my partner and I um, are not married. Uh, he is back in Newfoundland finishing off his degree and I am here in Calgary. Um, and before I left, I was living with him and it was a constant battle of like, just getting him to remember little things um, Mm -hmm. just because it was like never on his mind. (laughs) 
God, yes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and they would be like, we got a new puppy. And there was fluff everywhere from one of the toys. And he's like perfectly okay with just walking over it. Oh my God. I'm like, Nick, oh. you need to clean up after the You're dog. preaching to the choir. <laughs> oh my gosh, yes. Like, yeah, you know, like, well, and you know, selective <laughs> hearing? I feel like it's also selective yeah. vision. Selective memory. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, I actually, um, I noticed something really interesting about that recently. Mm -hmm. um, insofar as me and uh, my husband were talking and I, I was going on like, I feel like I, you know, like I've just had no time to do anything lately. This was, this was last semester mm -hmm. um, when things were really starting to, you know, hit it with, uh, with COVID. And he was saying like, oh yeah, I have, I have zero time. And, and we were kind of talking about scheduling and I was like, are you, are you sure? Cause like, I mean, you think, by the way, you did the dishes the other day. Thank you. And he's like, well, yeah. Like, and he realizes talking through it that I didn't count chores into my scheduling. They were just things that happened around the other things I had to do. Like chores a lot of times feel like they are my free time. And for for him which honestly he probably has the better way of thinking about it insofar as it's no it's, it's a task it's work that you put into your schedule and it was just such a weird like brain mismatch you know where i thought no no, no that's that's free time <laughs> <laughs> it's true i think um it kind of comes back to like this idea of protecting the time that you have as well mm -hmm. um i had this prof uh, in my first year of my PhD, who was really a big advocate of like protecting the time you have to write. Don't do anything else. That is your writing time. Do not answer emails. Do not go up and sweep the floor. Like this is your writing time. But I think it can be expanded into like time in general. Because like a lot of times we as women burn out um, either in academia or just with life because we do not protect our time the same way that I think a lot of men do. Um, of This is my time now to do insert thing here and then after I will break and watch a movie or et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think that's an interesting dynamic that men have been taught to do that in a way that women necessarily don't see. Well, and I think it's an interesting thing as well um, speaking from both the Agora DGA side and also our faculty management, that, and I'd love to get your thought on this, Steph. Why do you think it is that almost all of the positions held within the executives of Agora, the executives in DGA, and the higher level positions within our faculty are held by women? Hmm. I actually have a thing about this for pretty much the past year of working in Agora. And I can't, I can't quite pin it down, my thoughts on it. I, I think that in part it is just because we seem to have a, like a female majority in the classics and religion department, which is fantastic. <laughs> um, but there is also a factor to it that I think, um, and I would love to get your guys' opinion on this, but I it's almost like women who get to especially higher levels of education um, seem to be some of the most ambitious. And so, and as, because of also the, uh, the time management thing we were talking about, um, all of the women I know who are in those positions of administrative power, especially when it's uh, 
you know, in conjunction with other academic uh, power and they are totally wiped out. Those, like those people get no breaks. And I think it, there is a factor of like, if, if you're, if you're not working every second of the day, if you're not on your grind, you're, you're wasting time or you're being lazy. I came from a university that I will not name <laughs> um, <laughs> where um, this was very much an issue because um, if I wasn't doing double the amount of work as my white male peers, then I wasn't valid. Um, so I had to be that much more educated, that much, have that many more resources, have that much stronger of a paper, and have that much bigger of a resume to even be able to hold my own or to get anyone to even listen to me. Um, and that was incredibly frustrating. So when I came here <laughs> to Calgary, it's like, oh, grad students talk to each other and also support each other and also the undergrads are doing great. And also I don't have to do quadruple the amount of work to be seen or heard. This is an odd situation. Mm-hmm. But I think that there's still definitely something going on with how much we feel the need to do. Well, Absolutely. and I think a point that I, cause I've been thinking about it for a while too, is I'm not trying to belittle or berate on men too much in this situation because I understand that there's a lot of factors and it's a complex situation to help people get into these positions or like you were saying too, personal drive and motivation. But for me, something that came to mind instantly is these positions are largely selfless and there's a lot of volunteer time. And when it comes to men, it's exactly what you were saying, Sid, with us not guarding our time well enough or maybe well enough is not the right word, but more so men, in my opinion, I think are better at prioritizing and putting themselves first. And if they're not seeing a reciprocal relationship out of this, because let's be honest, yes, it looks okay for CV building, but at the end of the day, it's a lot of work and that's an expectation to be set outside of our academic career. Yeah, absolutely. Cassie speaking from the queen of taking on too much. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. It's all... What is that saying? Busy people get stuff done. (laughs) (laughs) They have no choice. Yeah, it's just like you slot it in and it gets done instead of someone that has all this time. They seem to continually have all this time, but... I think that, you know, especially within student-run organizations like Agora and the DGA, I also think there's a sense of approachability that comes from being female that I think maybe is sometimes lost if uh, it was a primarily male-driven executive um, board. Mm-hmm. And actually, that reminds me, I have a question, Sydney. Um, yeah. This uh, previous university that shall not be named was... <laughs> Do you think that a factor to the difference in culture was that there were more men in faculty and in positions of authority? Um, I think that it more had to do 
with the isolation that this university had. Mm. Um, and with the isolation comes this sort of uh, ability to cling on to traditional values that are prevalent within society um, in that location that perpetuate into the university life. Um, so there were more men um, in some sections of the faculty um, and in some sections of like upper administration. But I think the problem actually comes down to the way that administration was structured as a whole. Um, and yes, University of Calgary is run as a, like a corporate business, yeah. but they do have policies that um, protect people uh, a little better than this other university did. So they didn't really understand the importance in many of the faculties of like gender studies or inclusivity or creation of space for women or LGBTQ humans um, to be heard. And they were very reluctant to change and couldn't see the benefit of changing. It was very much a, well, if you can't jive with this space, that's on you. Um, wow. Instead of realizing that it was a male-centered space um, and that not everyone could necessarily conform to it. So I think um, it was mostly due to the isolation and the surrounding society that resulted from that isolation. Honestly, hearing that Calgary is more liberal in any way than anywhere else is just shocking to me. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that is a good point. And how do you feel that being a member of the LGBTQ community has affected your university experience, if it has. Hmm. I, I think it has, uh, in most cases, kind of serendipitously um, been positive. Uh, in terms of academics, um, in our department, I think that there's a lot of, like, there's a lot of visibility um, for women and for gender studies in history where they're i'm led to believe in other universities there really isn't mm -hmm. and which is beautiful um but i haven't actually met another like out queer um academic who is intending to go the faculty route um and that is really interesting to me. And so most uh, professors I've spoken to when I cover, you know, specifically gender and sexual history, um, they actually find it really interesting, uh, which is fantastic. But I also know that I am in somewhat of a privileged position. I mean, not only is our department kind of shockingly um, willing to engage with gender and sexual history and other kind of non-traditional classics, uh, subgenres, if you will. Um, my experience has thankfully been positive. So I think that it's kind of on me and honestly on any intersectional feminist uh, scholar to do as much as we can, not just in academics, but in the broader university scope to make sure that we aren't the only ones there, you know, that there are as much a diversity of voices and academics as there can be, because that, that's ultimately what's going to make it so much richer and stronger. 
Yes. Oh, Steph, my heart. (laughs) (laughs) I 100% agree. Um, Like, so both my partner and I are bisexual and like, they're, it's very easy as um, two bisexuals who are dating members of the opposite sex to disappear into the framework mm-hmm. um, and to not be recognized as queer, um, which is fine, um, especially when it comes to some aspects of academia because it's easy to just like melt into cishet society, um, which shouldn't happen, but I found it often did for me until I went into the gender studies department at um, the university which I was attending. Mm-hmm. Um, but part of it, I think, was because the university wasn't creating a safe enough space for people. Like we had TERFs putting anti trans information in bathrooms. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. Oh, I had to rip that shit down if I saw it. My goodness. Yeah, it, it was crazy. So students ended up mobilizing and tearing off, you know, a lot of these turf messages within their bathrooms. And the university just came out and made a statement that said, yeah, we don't condone this, but didn't really do anything about it. Um, which is really frustrating when you're trying to figure out how to make space for voices to be heard. Um, do you have any recommendations or any thoughts on how we can better do that in a university atmosphere to make space for women, but also members of the LGBTQ community? I definitely think that uh, student-led initiatives are always just going to be better than most faculty-led initiatives. Coming from the top down obviously would be nice, but just based on... I mean, certain other things that have happened at the University of Calgary, I just can't trust that the admin will always do that, especially because, like you said, the UFC in particular, it's a business and it's run like a business. And if it's not profitable to stand up for an underclass, they're not going to do it. <laughs> I don't know if that's too totally You can cut it out if it is. <laughs> but, um, but on top of uh, student-led initiatives, I, I think that um it, it just doing uh as much as possible to make it fiscally available for more trans people and for more non-binary people and women and you know especially you know um queer people of color to to have those people be able to go to university, to have it be financially viable in places where it isn't. I mean, that's, it's a hard thing to do. I'm I'm not a politician, but I think that the more people you have to diversify the space, it, because the thing is that most TERFs, they don't know any trans women. Like that's the problem. (laughs) Obviously they're radicalized as well, but for the most part, when you have people who just don't know, they just don't have a lot of engagement with the queer community, the more queer kids you have going to that school, the more that's going to change. Yeah. That's really the only way for it to change, I think. 
I think so too. I I think that's like increasing visibility is really important. Um, I also think that universities in general have to have less tolerance for um, people in classes taking up space and being what I would term, I guess, time wasters um, by yes. pressing these <laughs> insane like white supremacy or like um, anti-LGBTQ agendas within class. Mm -hmm. To some extent, there's free speech, but then to another extent, it's just bigotry and harassment. And I don't know if universities necessarily know the difference at this juncture. Yeah. And I mean, I think that a lot of university admin might go into that sort of situation thinking like, well, there's going to be an angry protest no matter what. So I may as well pick the ones that are least likely to shoot it up. <laughs> yeah. um, which, I mean, I don't think that's valid, but... I, I think I definitely ascribe to the notion that there is only so much debate that can be had about shit that we already know is true. Like, <laughs> we know that fascism and Nazis are wrong and cause horrible, horrible things to happen to innocent people. I don't think we could be any more sure of that. And so I think that there's a serious willful ignorance that happens when it is made tolerable you know it's like the the adage about the the tolerant society the only way to have a tolerant society is to be intolerant of intolerance i think something that comes to mind for me is just like we were talking about earlier with breaking down the barrier between undergraduate and graduate level education and making it known that we're all part of a university community and regardless of the level of our education we're in this together. And I think something that comes to mind regarding the queer community within the university campus is I feel like there's that similar wall put up between the two uh, communities of being heterosexual, cis, and also the LGBTQ community and trying to find a way to bridge that gap without like creating a safe space to do so because I understand that there's a lot of negativity or a lot of room for judgment to come from one side or the other and finding a way to facilitate that and make that more approachable because for someone that is not part of that community that wants to support and get involved and learn about the struggles to further the agenda on both sides I think the space is not being made in terms of having that intermingling between the two communities I totally agree. Like, I couldn't agree more. And like you were saying earlier, Sydney, if you're a bisexual person, especially if you're cis, and you are dating um, a person, like if you're in a heterosexual couple, not the right way to phrase it, but you get what I mean. Um, it's incredibly easy to fly under the radar and to be straight passing. And it's so incredibly easy that even in um, in queer spaces at the university that do really great work, um, sometimes I feel like I walk in and people just assume that I'm a straight girl, <laughs> which yeah. sucks. Um, but I think that uh, there's kind of a dual point to what you were saying, Cassie, is that um, on the one hand, there's like there, it, there should be a space made 
to have people who don't engage or don't know how to engage with the queer community and the members of that community that are willing to do what is a functionally emotional labor to interact and answer questions and get involved. Um, the counterpoint to that is, like what I said earlier, if we have more queer students in general, that space is going to be the entire university, which is like definitely kind of pie in the sky. It's not an immediate solution, but it would be a beautiful one. Um, and to that point as well, I think that as a bisexual woman who can straight pass, <laughs> um, much to my chagrin, uh, I actually kind of take on a lot of that emotional labor as whenever I can and as much as I can. Because I've literally encountered um, people who are now my good friends, but when I met them who were kind of sheltered to the queer community and fed a lot of vitriol and just had all this awful anti-queer rhetoric in them. And I kind of stealth befriended them partially without knowing that. And then it was a shock to both of us. But, you know, now it, because I was able to um, talk to them in this open and kind of um, almost like loving environment and receive that in return, that's so valuable, like to, to make that change in some way. And it's something that, as, as much as I think it spaces for that need to be manufactured, it is really difficult to manufacture. You know, at the end of the day, you're, you're talking about changing people's hearts. And that's hard to do. <laughs> it's true. I think especially in like a, a kind of, to use your words, like manufactured environment, because I think oftentimes people go into those locations feeling attacked, whereas if it happens naturally, it's it's a bit different. Um, I did my undergrad at St. Effects, and there's like this joke that like 95% of St. Effects is like on the LGBTQ spectrum. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I mean, there's been, uh, there's always issues with X, there's always, you know, uh, some people that come into the environment that are anti-LGBTQ, and then there's some other issues with it being very, very corporate. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, I didn't find out I was bi until St. Effects. <laughs> because I was like, well, I love boys. Uh, <laughs> but it was such an open like space of, for the most part, people just being like, ah, oh, whatever. Um, you know, you can mingle with whoever, you can be with whoever, nobody really cares. This is just like this happy little bubble that's sheltered from the world for better or for worse. Um, I think just having that much representation like led to that much more acceptance amongst the community, which was really interesting to see. Um, that is beautiful. Yeah. Truly. That actually <laughs> answers a couple of questions. Um, I have a cousin who goes to St. FX for business, or I guess he's graduated, but he he's always been like a total hockey bro. And he came back one Thanksgiving, like, yeah, I'm doing a, I'm doing a women's studies class, and me and my, uh, me and my buddy Shorzy from the team are, are doing a, a whole presentation about the acceptance of trans women, and I was like, this is incredible. <laughs> I felt like I was in the Twilight Zone. So that actually answers some questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's um, X is a very odd, odd place. Uh, <laughs> For better, for worse. <laughs>
Mm. Um, do you think, though, that, um, like, how do I phrase this? I guess, do you think that being of the LGBTQ community that um, it has guided your research at all or your interests or? Oh, God, yes. <laughs> like, almost exclusively, which I know you're not allowed to say, but it's true for me. Um <laughs> I, uh, I actually realized that I wanted to do classics um, specifically because I, around the end of high school, I started looking into um, just like queer history, I guess. And I realized, like I had this like epiphany, which to anybody who studies classics, old hat, but I had this epiphany of, oh my gosh, like heteronormativity and cisnormativity is not the universal norm (laughs) and i just like i was filled with this almost like manic need to find out more and to just share it with like anybody who would listen i was just especially because i i had this thought that i was like oh my god if i knew this like when i was 13 this this sort of changed my life and yeah Oh, sorry, I'm getting emotional. No, <laughs> just does it to me. Oh. Well, and I think that's really interesting that you bring that up too, in terms of how you found accept, uh, acceptance and accessibility to information through ancient history, and not something that was contemporary, and that the connection for you came through acceptance or perhaps a realization that humans have been this way and it was far more normative thousands of years ago that why has it shifted so far to today and along with what sydney's work is doing right now in terms of gender identification i think that sexuality should be more or less in a fluid web instead of being on a spectrum with having being a member of the lgbtq community or being straight and i think that even thinking of men that have crushes on celebrities or sports players, you know, they're still admir- like admiring them and looking at them in a specific way where, you know, they make ploys of like, oh, yeah, if I was a girl, man, he'd be the one for me. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I think that there's far more of that today present, and it's just a regression of societal normativity when it comes to fluidity within sexuality. So it's very interesting for me to hear that, well, it's completely understandable to have your studies be shifted based on your personal life experiences, that you relate to it in a way that it's almost as if you want to have these norms rehashed or refleshed in today's world to understand that this is okay. Mm. And that, think- that was, oh, go ahead, Sydney. No, you go, Steph. Oh, ooh, oh my. Um, <laughs> I think that uh, that is definitely how I felt um, early in my studies. I think that as I, as I kind of got deeper into it, and as I get deeper into it, I'm starting to see that the uh, nuances of it are uh, are really kind of complicated. And it it's so situational based on time and place and, 
you know, surrounding culture and political environment, God knows what else, right? Um, this These ideas of sex and gender norms. And in some ways they are what I would consider more regressive, but in other ways they're not. But the important thing to me now is that they're different and that this, this way that we look at especially gender, but also sex and how we engage with sex. Um, I think that a lot of people who don't have engagement with pre-modern history don't know that these are not universal temporal constants. Like they have changed and they will change again and they should change to facilitate as much human happiness as possible. I think there's something so comforting too about the fact that like, it wasn't always this way yes. and it will not always yes. be this way. Like, I'm, for those that don't know, I'm studying um, Byzantine history and I'm looking at saints lives um, and gender bending within saints lives um, and trying to argue for like a new gender model for that time period. Because I don't think that linearity as we see it today or even what we call spectrums um, are, is, even viable for that time period. Um, because I think spectrums still imply a binary that doesn't exist. And I think that just getting closer to like material and looking at how different subsects of society, whether it's holiness or being um, a part of an imperial family or being a eunuch or um, being from a rural area, can all change how people see um, gender and sexuality is really just fascinating and also speaks to how these ideas were constructed in the first place. So just, it helps to try and figure that out so that in the future, you are better able to manipulate your current reality to be as inclusive as possible. Um, and I think that should be kind of the goal of all this sort of work is just inclusivity and making space for people in history instead of just being like a sidebar of history. Absolutely. God, yes. I love your, <laughs> you talk about your research, Sydney. I'm like, whew. But um, absolutely. I, I totally also love that um, it seems like classics and uh, history have really opened up as well to gender studies, or at least my my perception of it um, is that it has, because it, it's important to understand something so fundamental, like how the people who are writing about war and politics thought about sex and gender, because it's baked into everything. like. If you if you read Tacitus, half of the invectives he's using are coded with sexual and gender like suggestions that if you don't understand how the Romans thought of those things, which is way different than the way we think of them, you're not going to actually understand the text. So like this stuff is important. It's not fringe. It's so true, and people forget that these are like bags that everyone carries with them. Like, I don't understand how we've gotten this far without examining these facets of human nature, because how can you understand interactions between different people and between each other 
without understanding something so fundamental or at least attempting to. It completely changes the way that you approach texts and sources and archaeology and just each other in general. And I think that's kind of a core of trying to make space within the current university setting is making space for these kinds of conversations in general. God, yes. <laughs> and I think one of the things that I've learned coming from an anthropology background is dealing with history, whether it's 300, 2000 years old, by removing gender and sexuality and the analysis of that through history, you're in effect dehumanizing who these people were and how you go about studying it to further create the aura that they were part of myth and were stories versus the actuality that these people truly existed for the most part. And um, yeah, it's just a dehumanization to me. Yes, I absolutely. And I, I think that the further back into history you go, the harder it is not to fall into it, especially because, I mean, I think that anybody who studies like pre-modern history when the sources are quite scant and quite subjective, um, it's hard to not think of it as like, you know, these are as, as close to fantasy as you can get while still being history. The characters are so huge and over the top because most of the writers that we get, at least from the periods that I look at, um, is kind of what they're expected to do. It's, the things that we're getting are not pure history, they're entertainment. But it is so important to look at that anthropologically. Like, these are, these are people, these are people doing things and, and we need to analyze that as we would any other person with nuance and in, in some ways, like empathy, but logic as well. Mm -hmm. It's true. And not only is it people doing things, but I think it's really key to look at the purpose behind why it's being written because the things that are being written about are still very much a part of their everyday the way that they interact with each other the rituals that are performed the you know for me <laughs> um the miracles that are performed by <laughs> these martyrs and saints um they all say something about like an idealist environment that the author is trying to create and i think like even though some of it might not be real, just looking at the subtext of why it was written can really lead, again, to like opening up historical accounts um, and making this field very inclusive. Mm, That's why I love absolutely. history, because you can kind of manipulate it in that way to look at things in different lenses. And actually, Sydney, I had a question, um, because Byzantine is, is kind of later than my time period, but do you feel as though it, it can be valuable to look at certain pieces of writing with the knowledge that a great portion of even a supposedly historical account is likely fictional? Like, do you think that it's, it's valuable to do that and look at it as a lens towards which um, it is reflecting the author or like the the social mores of the time. Yeah, I think for me, and because of the sources in which I deal with, I go in with a healthy dose of mistrust. <laughs> I mean, as um, to any ancient written source, to be honest. <laughs> exactly. Um, a lot of my 
so my central time period, uh, just to add to like kind of what I'm doing, um, I'm kind of arguing that the iconomachia, so the big event where they tried to shut down the usage of images in the Byzantine Empire through like the what we now call the Orthodox Church, um, is a time where they're just trying to gain control over bodies. So I look at my sources purely through um, like a queer lens, um, not even through a gender one, because I think gender um, to some extent is kind of outdated. Um, I think it needs to be more inclusive and that's where I think queering comes in. Um, so I go through the idea that my sources are employed for a purpose um, and what looking for what that purpose is. So whether it's a hagiographical account, so like a saint's life, um, I go in thinking that this is meant as propaganda for the church. Um, and like, sure, the life is interesting, but what happens if I look at it as um, hagiographical accounts being this idealized version of what you need to do to quote unquote, get to heaven and to get to God and what that means if you are turning from man to woman or woman to man, um, especially in a church that preaches uh, no to a lot of LGBTQ sexualities and genders. Um, what does it mean when your idealistic person is breaking all of those rules? Um, so I think looking at your sources through the idea of what purpose did this hold in society is crucial um, to getting at the how it was used within like that society as a whole and then going from there. Mm. That is such cool stuff. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Well, and I think it's interesting, too, with how you were talking, Steph, about history and classics being a little bit more inclusive and receptive to this notion of introducing studies like what Sydney is doing or what you're doing and why it seems to be that there is a shift in scholars dealing with gender theory and queer theory being female for the most part and why is there such a notion of females attacking and dealing with this subject matter versus male representation within scholarship? Hmm. I actually ruminate on this quite a bit. And I think that there may be an aspect of it that when you look, you know, like 60 years ago or a hundred years ago, especially in classics, um, I mean, obviously it's it's majority male, but it's also primarily not what someone could coin feminine topics. So of course, gender and women's studies, but even aspects of uh, literary like um, critique theory used in classics was not as common. Um, and so I think that when you're looking at women filling these roles and, and looking into the scholarship, um, there might be a dual purpose. Part of it is that um, if you're looking at any ancient history, 
the you know the long running joke is that how do you find something new or it's something that's been out for like two thousand years? Um, and it's easy; you just cover things that men were too chicken shit to cover. <laughs> but also, obviously, that if you're a woman and you've existed in a patriarchal society your entire life, what's that like? Am I right? Um, <laughs> it makes it not only more engaging, but also perhaps in some ways easier to look into um, ancient ways of doing things or just any pre-modern historical setting and to be able to find truth in the silences that we have for women and queer issues. Um, the other thing is that I think it's a really rich body of study and somewhat more, I guess, accessible to female scholars because um, in, the, in the way of queer studies, this is stuff that was actively suppressed in academia for like a hundred years or more. <laughs> um, like very, very actively suppressed. And so um, if you're already, for instance, a woman who has an interest in um, antiquity and in women's history, um, of course you're going to seek to uncover all of the dirty secrets that men in 1908 were too chicken shit to actually face. And that extends beyond just, you know, just women and queer studies. I mean, um, I believe it was a female scholar who published one of the, uh, you know, one of the forefront pieces for the poly polychromia on statuary um, that really kind of spearheaded that effort and was maligned for it. <laughs> by primarily male classicists. <laughs> Do you think that um, it could be not so much that men are too chicken shit to look at it, but that they just don't deem it important enough to be looked at? Oh, absolutely. I think that I think that there's a big factor of it being women's work, you know, of it. No, no, no. Why? Why would we focus on women's life at home in Athens when we could be focusing on, you know, Themistocles's, uh, you know, uh, victory at Salamis? Well, because who do you think was feeding the soldiers? Who do you think was clothing them? Was spitting the textiles? Um, You'd be going into battle. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, the Greeks might be okay with that in some cases. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's, I think that that is an incredible factor that um, it just wasn't portentous enough for most scholars to cover. And also, um, you kind of mentioned earlier, Sydney, that the, the local culture that um, your university was based in kind of seeped into how the university functioned in some ways. Um, and I mean, that has been true through the past hundred some years of academ academia. And so maybe even if you were a man who, um, you know, straight or otherwise had an interest in women's work, uh, you, you likely weren't exactly encouraged to be spending years and doing money grants, you know, like uh, researching that. Yeah, I think it was that's totally a lot of different levels. Do you think too that um, this search, 
you know, in women studying these sorts of topics is a way that women have found to create space for themselves within the academic field. So I, I don't know as much about like early classic studies, um, but for us, there's not many women doing like military history. Um, but part of that is because I think the field is very flooded and it's very flooded with very traditionalist points of view brought about by male authors who are quoting other male authors who are quoting male authors from the 18th century. Exactly, yes. Um, I would absolutely agree. I think that it, it does have like that dual purpose of um, not only is it this underrepresented field that you as a woman have, you know, a very, um, might have an interesting perspective on and just an easier time getting into because it's already populated by either nobody or other women. Um, but also that, you know, I actually went in, I have quite an interest in military history, but um, it's not, <laughs> my interest is not strong enough to make me go through that. <laughs> Um, and I do want to say that I'm, I'm not an expert on early classic study from like the, you know, the turn of the um, 19th century or anything like that. I just, I have dug into some earlier scholarship and uh, although it hasn't been a lot, it's sure been telling. <laughs> <laughs> always well, and I think an interesting aspect for me too, again, tying back to anthropology side of things is if you're going to go about relearning, reanalyzing aspects of history, there's a certain level of bias removal and acceptance of new gender sexual, uh, like sexuality normativity that I think is hard for men to process in terms of reinterpreting their worldview and reinterpreting their understanding of history because there's a specific narrative, a specific lens they're viewing this um, material through, which when you impart genderqueer theory into that, it's almost a reanalysis of understanding how you fit within scholarship and how you interact and engage with that, that I think might be easier for women to do. Absolutely. Yeah, I would definitely agree. Um, and in terms of, because I know you, your original question was kind of um, why more women are engaging in general. And to that, I can't answer. But I do think that um, this is my uh, this is my theory. <laughs> yeah. We'll see if it's correct. But I think the next step in academia going forward is definitely going to be that um, as more women flood into all kinds of academic fields, but specifically history and classics and anthropology, perhaps as well. Like um, we're going to see that there's going to be more crossover, and my dream is to have less straight cis men in military history and more straight cis men studying genderqueer women in Athens, you know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> because I, uh, I think that as the true importance of these things comes more to light, there's going to be more women in the field who are then branching out to other kind of subsects of it. And I think I, or at least I hope that that is going to be happening in the other direction as well. Because that's just going to make a stronger field, like in general. 
when when all sorts of people are allowed to study their their passions no matter what that might be uh, that, that is truly my pipe dream <laughs> no and i think it's a really valid one i am completely there with you and i think that there needs to be more representation of individuals studying this type of work and I think at least my analysis of history and why I want to do reception studies within the Renaissance is that I believe that history has a massive domino effect that goes forwards and backwards and I think that we will not see proper male representation within queer and gender theory on a reanalysis of history or reception of history until it becomes more accepting and an open academic environment for men to express interest not only in this field but interest in further exploring their sexuality or what sexuality means on a whole mm -hmm. absolutely i agree i think it's about creating space on both sides right like I am a firm believer of not examining anything in a vacuum. And it's hard to do if you only have one gender or sexuality that's dominating a field, whether it's women or men or et cetera. We need all of those different points of view to get the broader perspective. Um, and I just hope that society can change. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, that's. <laughs> That's so beautiful. And I actually love your point, Cassie, on, on history going both backwards and forwards. Um, because I, that's kind of like one of my little obsessions in terms of historiography in that um, we have accounts that are only, like we have accounts of like, for instance, my true love, Olympias, mother of Alexander the Great, and all the major accounts that mention her are written after this period of um, kind of like Roman she-wolves, like Agrippina the Younger, Livia, Julia, if you will, etc., cetera, um, who kind of dominated the political landscape and were just maligned on, on basis of total feminine invective. You know, women are crazy and evil and they want your babies and whatever else Roman authors were saying. Um, all of the accounts of Olympias were written after that period of women in politics. And so my like crackpot theory is that the depiction we get of Olympias is so divorced from her original culture because it was influenced by recent politics. And yeah. we, we see that across history. And so I think that you literally cannot, especially if you're doing any sort of reception or historiographical study, you cannot look at it within the vacuum because you're going to miss so much nuance. Yeah, no, I completely So true. Have you found that you've had any pushback towards your work? Because my, <laughs> for better or for worse, uh, my point of view when it comes to my work I guess, and uh, whether it will be received well or not has come down to the fact that uh, history moves forward one death at a time because people cling so <laughs> firmly onto their <laughs> traditional points of view. So have you found any pushback at all or have you, are you part of the new generation of acceptance? 
<laughs> I mean, I, I suppose that I am, but only because as I'm still an undergrad, I think I'm incredibly sheltered from the broader classical environment, um, which I mean, I'm sheltered within a space that by all accounts is, is really wonderful and inclusive which is such a blessing to me. I'm so thankful for it. Um, but I am worried about that, you know, harsh drop into cold water that I'm going to get almost inevitably because I think there will be a lot of people who who don't accept my work. Like um, one of my uh, kind of small time favorite academics right now is Elizabeth Carney because she wrote this like gorgeous tome on Olympias highlighted a lot of the things that I was just talking about and um, I like she got maligned from all sides from other you know doty old white Alexandrian um, uh, scholars who just despised her work because she dared question the sources of Alexander <laughs> we're gonna question them they're 2,000 years old like what do you want us to do so, but to, to your point, I um, I haven't yet, but I'm pretty certain that I will. Um, and the best thing that I think uh, fellow scholars in niche scholarship, especially women and especially uh, queer people, like the best we can do is just kind of stick together. Because I think that your scholarship and your writing is so needed, so valuable. And... I, uh, you know, I'll have your back, <laughs> even if the <laughs> Alexandrian scholars won't. <laughs> I've got yours too, don't worry. But I think it's, like, really great that, like, academia itself has progressed enough that in undergrad you are able to explore those topics and not have pushback. Like, I think that's a great, like, an amazing feat of academia in and of itself. Um, that makes me really excited for, like, the the new generation coming up through as I talk as an ancient PhD candidate. Like. It's, it's funny, actually. We, uh, we have a beloved professor in our department who always says that classics is about 20 years behind everyone else, like every other <laughs> arts discipline. Um, and I'm sure that's true, but I've definitely found in my small undergrad experience that um, in terms of history, it's actually been kind of the opposite where the most um, opposition that I've seen to liberal takes on uh, on like on history, the more modern it is, the more I've seen pushback from kind of you know landed scholars and faculty. And, and then I come back to the classics department where all my <laughs> professors are like, ah, oh, you want to write about gay butt sex for an entire paper? Go ahead. I support you. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> mm -hmm. it's, it's really sweet. But I think a part of it, too, is that um, there's, you know, when you get to more modern history, there's so much very present baggage that nobody wants to talk about. <laughs> like, I, um, I've taken only a couple of modern history courses, but one of them, there, uh, there was this piece of um, scholarship I stumbled across about um, kind of like modern uh, Black women's history in Western Canada. And it was a 
a beautiful paper laying out kind of what we know and what we don't know and how we deal with what we don't know. But one of their big revelations was like that we need to start using more non-academic sources like biographies. And I'm like, no shit. Were we not doing that already? (laughs) It was just so strange coming from you know, from classics where we have so little, every little piece needs to be used and appreciated (laughs) and like put toward this vast puzzle and to know that there is still, I guess, more of a prevalent um, blockade for non-academic sources, especially for studies on minority people who have been blockaded from making academic sources. It was just shocking, you know, like, so no, no discipline is perfect as the TLDR, but I definitely feel blessed to be, uh, to be involved in a classics department that is so unabashedly, like, supportive and loving towards these niche topics that um, maybe are not going to be as accepted in other areas. (laughs) Yeah, I I totally agree. Well, and I think it's an interesting point that you make too, in terms of being an undergraduate student within this community and feeling the acceptance as well as the support to push forward with your ideas. And I'm wondering if you would get that kind of support in a faculty that perhaps had more male representation in executive positions because, and I know we shouldn't be stereotyping, but I feel that a lot of men within academia, especially in classics, hold more traditional views in terms of their approach and how they feel that classics should be studied. So do you think that that has a factor in your undergraduate education in terms of the support and acceptance you feel? Hmm. I think that with just because of the experience I have, it's it's really hard to say. The best I can answer it is just that in the scholarship that I have consumed, um, the worst takes have happened to all have one thing in common with their authors. That's <laughs> And so um, I think that it, uh, definitely the most conservative um, views I have seen have by and large been from doughty old male professors. Um, but granted, also some of the the most accepting and the most, you know, excited to branch out professors in our department are also men who I've encountered. So um, I can't say for certain. I, I think there's almost certainly truth to it, but I don't know. Uh, did uh, did you find anything, Sydney, being from a couple different departments? Yeah, I love our current department. <laughs> Um, I think they're way more accepting, um, and I think that they are um, more on the front of new theories and methodologies, because I think a lot of the stagnant um, academia that I have seen has come from an adherence to old theory and methodological takes without wanting to evolve. Um, So, like, even the idea that people might accept oral histories um, or, you know, biographies is something that I hadn't necessarily seen in my master's degree. Um, So I think it's more about having a growth mindset over 
gender. And I think that your society determines whether you're going to have a growth mindset. And I think that having such an open and just genuinely kind faculty means that anyone that is entered into the faculty is forced to conform. Yes, Um. (laughs) definitely. I definitely think that's true. (laughs) So I think, you know, that's um, a really big part of why the faculty is the way that it is, is because there's so many people that are willing to push forward with new ideas and are keeping up to date on academia. And part of that too might be because the university actually has resources yes. <laughs> um, to provide them with that. <laughs> so I think that too, in changing like our theoretical ideas, um, that you're going to be able to have a more diverse student body. So, you know, leaning more heavily on oral histories, you're definitely going to appeal to you know, uh, indigenous populations to spirited humans and people that normally, you know, don't follow the traditional ways of doing academia, but it's still totally valid sourcing. Um, and the more we lean into those, I think the more open it's going to be in general. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I think that, I don't know, I, I, like reading that article and engaging with a couple other you know, students who have done specifically Canadian history, just because it's it's so present. Um, the fact that there is such a divorce between what seems to be Canadians, like Canadian history studies and Indigenous studies, it, it just blows my mind. Like these things are so interconnected and yet they, by what I've seen, are incredibly divorced in the scholarship oh. it just it 100% stresses me out to even think about it <laughs> <laughs> me too and I think you know there was this huge push back in like when I first started my undergrad in like 09 <laughs> um that was like oh we're gonna get indigenous people involved in academia but they didn't create the space for them they just put out posters um and those posters were like hey, are you Mi'kmaq? Then you should come to uh, St. Effex and be a nurse or something. And then it was just all white people on the poster. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, oh, that one hurt. <laughs> <laughs> the students were like, what is going on? Oh, that's so bad. You, you can't just like, you need to put in the work to make the space accepting. You can't just put out posters like that's not like we're going somewhere with this yes but you need to actually do the work to make this inviting but also to make it applicable for indigenous populations like do hands-on um learning do learning that's rooted in you know um like grounded theory (laughs) it's just so important and i think that's a piece that universities are missing Yes, absolutely. (laughs) I think it'll be interesting to see where things go forward, especially with the climate of the Alberta government and what they're doing with education, both in the university and, yeah, exactly, (laughs) curriculum. So, yeah, I just, I felt my blood sugar just like shoot up. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're, you're totally right. And I, I think that also in terms of kind of, um, 
taking down barriers to engage with um, indigenous people and get them into scholarship. Such a big part of it is that you can't just, you know, say we welcome you and then make no changes to the actual surrounding political landscape, like no changes to um, the way that they are accepted and brought to the university, especially in the case of the University of Calgary. I mean, if, if you're an indigenous person living, for instance, on the Satina Reserve and you don't have a car, how the hell are you going to get to the university? There's no public transit. Right. <laughs> like, what, yeah. Do they expect them to drop $800 a month on, um, you know, living in residence on campus? Because that's how much it is before the meal plan. So yeah. it, it's totally inaccessible from all accounts, but they say that because there's, you know, bursaries that, <laughs> that it's totally fine. It's not fine. Know, it's like if, if we want to have more indigenous voices, there needs to be broad political changes. And like you said, Cassie, that doesn't seem to be what our uh, provincial government is very invested in at any level of education. Yeah, we'll see how it we'll see how it goes. Fingers crossed. Biden got in, so maybe we have hope. <laughs> right. <laughs> No, it's true. It's like that difference between equality, equity, and justice, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's insanely infuriating. Um, I'm, I'm from Newfoundland, and uh, we had the Bialthic population there. And, you know, um, Newfoundland refuses to acknowledge that as a genocide. And like, okay, but like, you killed all of them. <laughs> like, oh my that's gosh. a genocide. <laughs> like, um, and so I think you know and then just recently they came out and they were like oh maybe we should listen to the indigenous populations in newfoundland and acknowledge that there is still you know biophic blood on the island that it just intermingled with Mi'kmaq populations and all of the indigenous people on the island were like yes we've told you this for at least six years <laughs> but sure only listen to us now um so i think there's definitely a lot of work to be done in Canadian university centers to try and make them more inclusive to everyone um, and to just not wash our hands and say, oh, well, we tried. We put out posters. Um, <laughs> we, <laughs> nobody accepted it. God. <laughs> we put up the posters right next to the turf anti-trans bath- bathroom posters, so therefore everything's fine. Exactly. <laughs> So, like, what societal and, like, institutional changes do you think should come forth in the next few years to try and, like, level the playing field a bit and to get more, one, community involvement, but more people just drawn to academia in general? Abolish tuition. <laughs> oh, man. No. I, mean, I, I know, like, I, and I don't mean to get too radical, but, like, you know, my husband is Norwegian. He did most of his schooling in Norwegian and in in Norwegian in Norway. <laughs> he did most did it in Norwegian too. <laughs> Actually, no. The university was English speaking. Oh, too bad. Cool. I know, right? Um, but yeah, not to not to go totally off correct track. But he um, does have student debt, but only because he did one year ab- abroad at uh, the University of Dublin. And because 
the Irish university system is a lot more similar to the Canadian university system. Um, yes, like an, just an outrageous <laughs> amount of debt from one year there than he does at the entirety of his schooling in Norway. He's a master's degree. Um, and part of that is because they don't have tuition fees. So the only fees you have are your living expenses and your textbooks. And granted that, yeah, right. Um, that is still not perfect. I mean, um, for instance, they have schooling. Their semesters are incredibly long. I think they only get uh, a month and a half summer break or something like that, um, partly because it's expected that you you be going to school for as little time as possible. And so their uh, degrees are only, is it two or three years? But anyway. Uh, and so you basically can't work full time while doing a degree. So you're still going to amass some kind of debt. There's still there's still um, an accessibility to it. But the other thing is that it changes the entire way the actual university itself functions. Like the dropout rate at uh, his university, it was uh, the Norwegian Institute of Science, I believe. Um, the dropout rate is incredible. It's like sixty percent, but that 60% of students really shouldn't be there anyway. And it actually was because the professors felt less burdened with the knowledge that the, the kids they're teaching and grading are thousands of dollars in debt. They, there's a lot more honesty in the grading and in the, like in, in the ability of professors to do their jobs. It, it just, it, it really unburdens the entire system. And the fact that North American universities are so resistant to it and North American governments are so resistant to it is, I mean, it's just, it's just a rip off basically. <laughs> yeah. The, the fact That's that really the Alberta government is uh, so resistant to investing in the next generation is shameful to me <laughs> definitely i feel that to my core um you know newfoundland has a very low tuition rate but i mean the buildings are falling apart there's no resources and like the administrative bloat is just giant in upper levels of admin um unnecessarily so um, and then they just tax you to death. Like there's tax on tax on tax. And then the government is like, why is no one staying? And like, <laughs> you're making it inaccessible. Yeah. And I think that one nonpartisan call from all over Canada is just the need for total transparency in government spending. Um, totally. And it, it, it's like... <laughs> I truly feel that if we had that transparency, um, obviously people still wouldn't agree, but I think that the um, the culture around politics that is right now increasingly radicalized would be a lot more relaxed <laughs> because people would be able to engage with politics and educate themselves a lot more easily. Just, just release like a fucking pie chart, Jesus, <laughs> of, of yeah. and be honest about it. You know, yeah. and then because I, I guess 
what I'm getting at here is that if we do that, there is very little change that can happen to universities without government oversight, in my opinion, if you were going to go the route for incredibly decreased or free tuition. There has to be ministers that can oversee that there isn't incredible administrative bloat, you know, but that that also um, requires <laughs> civil, you know, civil servants who are uh, totally selfless and you know <laughs> probably gonna be women yeah <laughs> oh that's such a good point though i mean awesome. that's a a dream to have free tuition even if it's means a uh, higher tax value i think that the payoff of it for the society at large in general because the amount of people that i know that are still in their late 30s early 40s with student debt is incredible and yeah it's it's such a hindrance especially just talking with a couple of other people within the field right now finding a job between the ages of 20 to 30 right now graduating from university in our climate economic climate honestly good luck kudos to you if you find one um which is why i will stay in academia forever <laughs> right <laughs> Honestly, I am a great barista at this juncture in my career. That's about it. I got yeah. the best latte. <laughs> right? It's it's like I yeah, my um yeah, Yoko, my husband, he is actually working at the university right now and I mean, it's it, the climate is tough. It's an extremely stressful position. It's not even in his field. I will not mention the pay, <laughs> but like, just in order to make any use of his degree in ecology, it's uh, it's really difficult. Because oh, yeah. I mean, I know like everybody's heard the joke of starting position minimum wage must have ten years of experience in it. Oh God, gee, but that really <laughs> is how it is. <laughs> Oh yeah, no, it's so true. I mean, there is no such thing as an entry-level position anymore. It's completely scrapped. Mm -hmm. So, and I think it's it's kind of it's kind of crazy because like it's gotten so much worse in the past few years. Like I was talking to one of my supervisors, and she was like, "Oh yeah, like all the grad students go to Starbucks, and like that's where they get their jobs now." And she's like, "When I was younger, uh." we all worked at the same donut shop like that culture has always kind of been there but then the difference is is that she was able to get in and get tenured and yeah <laughs> like, exactly yeah. <laughs> and i'm like okay but like i'm gonna be working at starbucks for literally the rest of my life like hooray free coffee <laughs> i know i i mean like i i'm rhapsodizing about our department and i do i love them but i did sit down the other day and think why on earth are there like multiple award-winning scholars at the University of Calgary? And I just realized like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Bottom of the barrel. 
on the flip side of things, when I left my last university, all of my friends saw me off and they went, tell us what it's like at a real university. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. I guess that's true. I guess we have shark. So there's that. <laughs> I think that UFC, I think it's always the grass is greener mentality that you have, especially it's like when your mom tells you that you're pretty and you're like, yeah, whatever, you have to. But <laughs> I think with the University of Calgary, especially within the classics department, we are one of the leading ones within the country and we do have quite a large voice. And you're right, we have very prominent scholars and people that do have a lot of accolades and awards. And it's something that we should be utilizing in terms of networking and trying to think outside the box of how to approach the job market in a way that isn't conventional and does make room for us because yeah, here I am going to be a retail worker for the rest of my life, crying over my non-existent piles of money. And <laughs> there's a certain reality to the fact that uh, our degree, the title itself is very unapproachable for a lot of organizations and corporations within the work world. And so it's, finding that balance of trying to like you were talking about earlier with me said of transferable skill sets that we can use from this and you have so many of those stuff that i'm sure you're not even aware of oh that's that's very comforting i know that um for... like... <laughs> go step <laughs> i just i know that for a lot of other uh other undergrads definitely it's it's kind of a you have to laugh or you're gonna cry situation like <laughs> we all know that academia is something that makes us truly happy and that we feel like we are very gifted at um and we also know that there's an equal chance that we could be living our dream and you know teaching a, a lecture hall in you know, 15 years as there is that we could be working as a fucking barista for 15 years. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's just, you know, it's, it's a labor of love. It, you, it's kind of putting a lot to, to hope and chance and also accepting the fact that as much as, you know, we and I adore academia, um, it's not the only thing that can make me happy. And that I'm going to go along with this and work as hard as I can to make it work. But there, there are other things, you know. Yeah, I can it's true. I always call myself a transition expert in interviews <laughs> because I studied medieval history. <laughs> like, oh, it's a period of transition. It's the same shit. <laughs> Transferable skills. Yeah, that's exactly. exactly. <laughs> that's so funny. On that note, I think we should probably end pretty soon. So I guess we'll leave it off on like one last question, which is what is like a piece of media? So either like a book or a movie or a podcast or show or multiple that you think all women in academia should consume and help to help get them through. <laughs> <laughs> that is a really good question. I, I mean, I think that in some ways it's tricky because women in academia are from all different, you know, all different um, subject, subjects and different subsects of those subjects and departments and et cetera. Um, 
And so it's difficult to kind of find something that encapsulates all of it. And so I think the best media that you can consume as a woman in academia is the media of your female peers, whether that be, you know, read their papers, help them proofread, help them go through their bibliographies, listen to their podcasts, you know, um, it, it, we are kind of at this moment, a somewhat underrepresented, um, you know, part of the population. And so there won't necessarily be mass media that, that really speaks to you. Um, but <laughs> if there's <laughs> any other queer, um, you know, gender uh, historians out there, I do have to plug my favorite scholar of all time, Amy Richland from UCLA. <laughs> I love her so much, <laughs> but she's she's one of like the scholars of Roman sexuality. And um, just in case, I did prepare a small quote from the introduction of her uh, her book uh, Marcus Aurelius and Love, which is a collection of uh, private letters from Marcus Aurelius that she's translated so beautifully. Um, and the the line is that. I hope that these letters will be of interest to those students of gay history who still value the quest for ancestors. I love that. It is really <laughs> stunning. If you don't want to read the whole book, just read the introduction because this is one of the books that I read and I thought I can do this. Like there are other people who are rooting for me. And if you're listening to this and you're a undergraduate and uh you know, aspiring scholar or a high school student, there are people rooting for you too, and you should do it. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I say it better myself. I love that so much. It made me tear up a little bit. I'm not going to lie. So I was just like, Moana. Like, that, was, <laughs> that was such a good answer. Oh my God. Only you. I, agree. I think, you know, <laughs> you know we, we do have to stick together and support each other and lift each other up. So I think that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thank you guys so much Thank for inviting me on. This is such a lovely, like such a lovely talk. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much. Oh, thank it's you. Pleasure. It's been so amazing to chat with you. Yeah. And you brought such good points, observations, thoughts to the table in terms of things that I hadn't considered or furthered my understanding of areas within academia. So I can't thank you enough. Thank you. Oh God, ditto. I'm, oh, I'm tearing up. I'm going to be riding this high for weeks, ladies. <laughs> <laughs> if anybody is looking for another um, female aligned podcast to listen to, to do with history and academia, 
I am starting my own. It's called Dux Femina Radio. That's D-U-X Femina Radio. Um, just go to duxfeminaradio.com and uh, look out for my episodes coming out soon. Thank you.